You're listening to The Sparty Cast. Starting the recording here. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Sparty Podcast. This is episode two. Um, we are with the amazing researchers, Mia Consalvo and Dimitri Williams. We're going to talk about game studies, the past, present, and future. Um, Mia, you are a professor and Canada Research Chair in Game Studies and Design at Concordia University. Yep. And uh, Dimitri, you are an Associate Professor of Communication at University of Southern California at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, where I did my PhD and learned a lot from you. Um, we also have Connor, the RA, who's hanging out <laughs> um, and will ask some questions. But uh, welcome. Thank you guys so much for being here. Sure thing. Happy to be here. So, game studies. Uh, let's start with the past. Um, what can you tell us just in your, especially like in your interactions with each other, how did you come to game studies and, and see it as a field and, and build it as a field um, together or separately? You want to well, go can, first? Sure, I can start. I was just going to say, I think I remember meeting Dimitri, was it like 2002, 2003, we were in Manchester? Manchester, that's right. Games conference there. Mm -hmm. And I remembered like, it was one of the first I had gone to, Jason Rutter put it on. And I had seen your name in the program and I thought you were Russian because <laughs> your name was Dimitri. <laughs> <laughs> and alas, you were, you were American, just like me. Um, but yeah, like they had um, some PS2 set up and there was this sort of energy around those early games conferences that, you know, games were important and they were finally being taken seriously. And, you know, it wasn't just about whether games cause violence in little children. And um, there was this like rush to sort of bring new methods and ways of understanding to the study of games. I remember this conference well. Um, it was also my first exposure to others of my ilk. Um, there had been something in, there'd been like a, a thing in Chicago like the year before. And I think that might've been the first one. Yeah. And then the Manchester one was the first one I got to. So I was a PhD student at the time. And I remember it was three or four days of basically us being kind of huddled together for warmth against the rest of the world that just didn't understand. You know, it was very much a, um, it was just a, a legitimacy thing. There was, there was a minimal amount of actual scholarship taking place. There were trace elements of scholarship going on. I remember presenting something and people being like, oh my God, it's research. And I was like, well, kind of, you know, but it was mostly just being there with people from other fields being recognized. Cause at the time, um, nobody took it seriously wherever they had just come from. I was in the process of trying to convince my advisors that this wasn't a terrible idea and losing, totally losing. Um, and I went to this conference and they were like, uh, I guess that's a thing, but whatever. I was, they were still trying to talk me out of this like two or three years later, I was doing my dissertation. There was very much a, oh, you do this too? You do this too? Like, you know, it's like, it was like a coming out convention in a corner of a, of a bar where like nobody else would admit that they were part of something, you know? How big um, was that um, conference? How many people do you think? It wasn't huge. I don't know, 30, like- 30, 40? Yeah. We were like and in I mean, some cheap dorm. Yeah. And I think like one of the key differences for me, because I had gone to that conference in Chicago the year before, like Henry Jenkins was talking at it and I, I wasn't presenting there. And the majority of the people who were giving talks sort of premised their talk with, I don't play video games, but my child right. does. Yeah. And then like there was the shift then to the Manchester conference. And there were some other ones happening around that time too, 
where suddenly it was the people presenting were actually playing the games. They weren't just sort of reporting on what and like the next generation did. Um, and yeah, I think also at the time, I mean, this is before there were any journals dedicated to games and some people were just sort of publishing research like Dimitri's saying on their websites. And, uh, you know, like I remember Jesper Yule had just put some stuff up and people would start using it because that was all that was there. Mm -hmm. But there certainly wasn't like anything really peer reviewed or kind of systematically being studied at that point or is just just getting started. Yep. So then what happened next? Uh, maybe the next five or 10 years? How did things change? Mm. Well, Mia's, Mia's done probably more institution building. I can only really speak to what's going on at, in, in COM at, at ICA, but Mia's much more um, founding of the field. So I'll save the ICA bits and the, the initial forays into contacts with industry. Yeah, I think so like a, a year or so after that was when DIGRA first got started, the Digital Games Research Association. And I forget like where we had started talking, but um, there was a group that basically we started a working group and then there was sort of a steering committee and Franz Myra from uh, Tampere University in Finland was the first president. And we had our first conference at Utrecht in the Netherlands and the conferences were about every other year. And the first one was huge. I just remember that. And um, again, like Dimitri saying, it was sort of just this excitement of like, wow, not, not only are, you know, like, you studying games, but look at all the people studying games and, and this, this could be a thing, right? And it was probably one of the biggest DIGRAs that there's actually ever been. And, um, you know, so there was DIGRA, there were a lot more special kind of one-off conferences, but then you saw the establishment of the Game Studies Journal and then SAGE started the Games and Culture Journal a couple of years after that. Uh, MIT Press launched its Game Studies line of books and so you started to see like sort of institutional establishment of journals, of book series, um, you know, associations. And then, you know, you started seeing within traditional associations like Dimitri's saying, like ICA, NCA and places like that, uh, they were starting to grapple with what do we do with games, right? So Dimitri, you wanna pick it up from here? Right, so there's a difference between games as its own field and games as uh, an element that is being tackled by existing fields. So if you're in architecture or you're in business, those things have game implications. And so do you just stay there or do you go off and like found some new thing off to the side? I'm, I'm actually having conversations right now um, at, where I am at USC about, well, should this be its own thing? Like cinema is its own thing, but it's had a hundred years to get going. At what point is games sort of as big as cinema? And the answer is it's already three times as big, but let's not talk about that. Like games dwarfs. Last year, there was more money and time spent on games than all other media put together. And yet it's this tiny little fraction of this other thing, but it's just a question of time, right? You know, you get enough people coming in and they're gonna want jobs and that, et cetera, it'll become its own legitimacy. But we're still in this weird trans transition phase where it's not gonna, it's, it's gonna take a while. So it's all silos in little institutions. So like some of the bigger fields and big as in quotation marks that thought this was not a bad idea were communication where, um, where we're based and also in education heavily. And um, this was really, there was, a, there was a group of people at the University of Wisconsin um, led by James G and his students um, 
Kurt Squire and Constance Steinkula started doing a, an annual conference there. And that was like education plus, and anybody could come to that. And I'm, I'm, I went to that a couple of times. Also, Madison such a great place to go hang out and have a good time. Um, and that was the very, the silo nature of it. Um, at the same time in parallel, the industry itself was starting to take itself seriously. So it was emerging from this is a thing for teenage boys with shooters to maybe there's more going on. Corporate lawyers start thinking maybe this is a real job. Um, venture capitalists realize there's a lot of money to be made. The ROI speaks for itself. It's emerging from um, an engineering only culture into a legitimate, for better or worse, conglomerate form with big giant companies with all of the, the bells and whistles and problems that go along with that. And so they and their conferences start becoming bigger. So you have the E3 conference, which is the consumer facing one, and the game developer conference, which is the more internal facing one um, happening and getting bigger and bigger. There are other things happening regionally around the world. You've got Gamescom in Germany, you've got um, a big one in China and a big one in Japan, but just being Western centric for the moment, um, you start getting these big conferences and they start to have little tangents and little feelers out into academia because for them it's legitimizing, right? A professor says we're for real, then we're for real. And for the professors it's like, cool, someone will talk to us and maybe we could get insight and data. And so that is the beginning of that, that tentative, maybe there's could be a reciprocal relationship thing happening. Um, and both Mia and I have presented at industry conferences a bunch of times. I remember going to see her um, top 10 game downloads, which hopefully she'll talk about in a sec and thinking, oh, there is a lot of really cool stuff going on here. And that starts to open up more of a dialogue between industry and academia. And then there's some like little weird one-offs. Like I met Raf Koster and Mike Sellers at some weird little thing done in Indiana where we were doing like performance art skits between sessions. I remember Julian DeBell throwing toilet paper at the audience. It was very fun and bizarre and wild westy and you've got all these strange characters um, overlapping because you got a lot of curious interesting people in the games industry who have academic backgrounds or academic thinking and they start to blur those lines and you start to get some connections to be able to be made yeah that was ted castronova's ludium series i remember because yeah. he invited like a small group of academics and game developers and um like it was sort of an unconference. He said it wasn't about presentations and we'd figure things out when we got there. And so, yeah, it led to some really weird situations. <laughs> it did. <laughs> True to his word. Yep. Um, but yeah, like, like Dimitri's saying, the Game Developers Conference, there's always, I, I would say there still continues to be some tension between academia and the industry. Um, I mean, oh, there's yeah. a lot Tons. of folks in the industry who still don't see the, the relevance or the importance of the academic side of things. They still look with suspicion, especially at, you know, like people who research violent effects or you know, like regulations or that kind of thing. Um, but there's always been like, I'd say a decent chunk of folks in the industry who are actually interested in what academics are studying. I mean, some of it's very transactional. So like the, the computer science folks, you know, they want to hire PhD students who can, you know, do the latest with AI, for example. Um, but then there's others who are interested in the social and the cultural uh, formations like within online games and the communities that form there, or they're interested in talking with academics about how players respond and like the work that Dimitri's done, you know, to see like how do players uh, 
adapt to new games, like what's going to make a player more likely to stick it out or, or to quit early. And, you know, like, I think that's been one nice thing with the game industry, you know, is that subsection, because it seems to me like there is still more of that than there is like between film scholars and the film industry where I don't see that happening much at all, or just like the very rare exception. Yeah, and, for sure. You don't get like Steven Spielberg saying, let's have a deep thought about what's happening in film and our audiences, but you do get his equivalent right. saying, yeah, I'll talk. Yeah. That's nice. <clears throat> On the uh, just brief tangent into the question of violence and aggression as effects of gaming, um, Dimitri, can you- If we must. Uh, just very briefly, can you tell us about your experience in the Supreme Court? Um, well, it was the Senate. Um, oh, sorry. So, well, I testified in the Senate, and then I was an expert witness in a case that wound up being referred to the Supreme Court. So, only indirectly. I, you know, they don't do live witnesses or anything there. So, uh, I wrote a paper um, coming out of my dissertation. So, I was researching other stuff, and I went to some smart people in my department. I said, "Hey, should I add an aggression thing as another?" measure and it can be just a dependent variable. And they're like, yeah, you totally should use this. And I was like, okay. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but I had a big experiment set up and I was exposing people to games. I thought, why not do this? And so I did it. And then I found results, which were surprising to me and surprising to many people. And they were the only results um, showing um, longitudinal effects of anything. And they were null results. And that was sort of deeply surprising, alarming, exciting, concerning, depending on what acts you had to grind. And so it wound up being a bit of a political football. It's not my research area at all, but I just, pre I just presented it and people loved and hated me uh, for, for these results. I mean, it's just a litmus test on the reader, right? It's nothing to do with me at all. So I wound up testifying before the US Senate just a year out of my PhD, just no business being there whatsoever. I stole the notepad from the Senate, it was awesome. Um, U.S. Senate, such and such committee. I kept that. Your tax I, I, dollars paid for it. It was yeah, yours to, to take. To, totally, totally. That was my big souvenir. And I got there. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have any guidance. Other people knew what to say. Like, I didn't even know how to put my stuff on the record. Like, I, it was a zoo. Um, and I went, like, uh, in, I went into a, a session with testimony where I was basically the only person saying maybe games aren't totally from hell because I had this single result. You know, N equals one. And I'm not making a strong statement. I'm just saying... I don't know for sure that they're sending you straight to hell. And everybody else is like, they're sending you straight to hell. And all these senators are like, it's all from hell, hellfire, brimstone. Okay, good times. Um, and then later I wound up testifying in Blagojevich v. ESA, which was an effort to restrict sales of games to minors that ran into First Amendment objections for obvious reasons. That um, merged with Schwarzenegger v. California, or in California v. ESA, and went up being referred to the Supreme Court. But it was the precedent set in the Blagojevich case where I was, um, where I was giving testimony that I saw the, the logic that would eventually go to the Supreme Court and be upheld. And it was nothing to do with me. It was um, Craig Anderson on the stand and he said, um, a very, very short version. I do like this for like 45 minutes of my class version. He got up on stand and said, you know, simply seeing a violent image makes you more likely to commit a violent act. Um, and therefore we should restrict access to violent images. And the judge looked at him and said, any violent images? He's like, yeah, that's the science. And the judge looked at him and that was the end of the case. He was like, cause you could see in his mind, he was like, we can't, you might be right, but we can't ban looking at things in this country and therefore this case is over like i remember anderson saying that the judge looking at him asking a follow-up question i looked at opposing counsel and opposing counsel was like oh fuck and that was the end of it the rest of it you know millions of dollars kept getting spent but it didn't matter that was over and that eventually 
played out in the Supreme Court um, half a year, a year later. It was entertaining. I was just a bystander watching it. That's that's very interesting. So we train wreck. So we've got uh, we've got game studies um, birthed into legitimacy a couple decades ago. We've got some controversy about aggression and violence, um, in, increasing kind of siloing of fields, maybe some integration with industry. What's been happening recently? Last decade, maybe last five years with game studies, what has changed? Uh, I'm particularly interested in kind of the connection between communication as a field, because that's where we come from, um, and the other DIGRA or other fields of game studies. Um, and uh, there, there seems to be in some ways a, a decrease in attention uh, from my vantage, but maybe it's just a shifting of who's attending from where. What do you think? Uh, maybe Mia, you can lead us off. Sure. Well, I mean, when I first started studying games, like around the time that Dimitri and I got together at that first conference, I would say that the, uh, the number of books that there were about games filled like a half of a shelf right, in my office. And now <clears throat> I can have full bookshelves. And so it kind of went from necessarily a sort of very generalist um, study to quickly kind of rapidly becoming <clears throat> more specialized, right? And so you saw the establishment of um, like game studies itself, uh, you know, and folks who really didn't want to affiliate with another domain, like if they could get away with that. Um, but, you know, they're looking at, you know, like games themselves as objects of culture, studying players and their communities, looking at the business side of games. But you also saw like rapid growth, like as Dimitri's mentioning with education and games, the growth of serious games, you know, you had folks from the military and um, healthcare, from medical schools suddenly interested. And for a brief moment, everyone was kind of thrown together in a very confusing mix. And then folks sort of marched off to their own corners increasingly. Like the military was like, we're gonna do what we're gonna do, goodbye. And everyone was like, okay, goodbye. But, you know, you saw like serious games and uh, folks who were interested in the psychological effects. You had folks coming in looking at history and you know, it just really began to replicate and it, it, you had to specialize because there was, there was no way to keep up. And so you know, we're all coming from communications and media studies as a discipline or field, I guess, depending on how you wanna frame it. And so you know, even within our field, there are so many different ways to look at games. There's like the social psychological effects, um, you know, there's communities, there's, uh, you know, like the cultural side of things. And so it's just been a lot of growth. And I think probably one of the, I mean, the bigger things, and we can talk about it a lot or not, is just that, you know, beyond the industry sort of acknowledging what we're doing, you saw like culture responding, um, you know, with like Gamergate in 2014, and suddenly people's research being weaponized, uh, you know, people being attacked for their views or, you know, their study of games. And uh, there's always been backlash in terms of like, who should be allowed to play games or call themselves a gamer, who has access, who are games made for. And you saw this suddenly become uh, much more vicious and sustained, you know, with the rise of Gamergate. And then since then, right. That's a great um, connection. I'm gonna seed Dimitri's response um, with respect to Gamergate and the current political situation, perhaps we're more polarized um, in some ways, perhaps Gamergate is very core to some of the extremist political movements. At least I've seen arguments for that. Um, 
So now that we've transitioned into a new political era, do you think game studies will change? Or where are we right now in game studies with respect to the politics of, I don't know, promoting uh, equal participation, level playing fields, that kind of thing versus um, the opposing side? And then and how, might, how might Biden change things? Well, I'm gonna, um, I'd rather defer to Mia on where we are in the state of games. It's the, the weakest thing I have here because I took several years off to run a company in the games industry and then came back. And while I was gone, I was off the reservation. I didn't know what people were talking about. I came back and looked at the listservs and saw people arguing about stuff I didn't totally understand. I still don't. So maybe I think you that's guys... the common experience, but sure, I can. <laughs> yeah, maybe you all could say like what's going on right now. Because I looked and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to sit back over here for a little while. I don't know what's happening over there. So no, no comment on that. I we'll just... come back to you for the future then. Yeah, come back to the future. The the one other thing I want to add on to what Mia has said is that, um, you know, remember that the vast majority of scholars in this area are junior scholars, not senior scholars um, with tenure or or fully promoted to full. Why and so, that? well, it's just a demographics issue. I mean, okay. there were there were a number of um, forward thinking um, senior scholars like James Watt, for example, uh, who helped found the ICA group um, or, or John Sherry. But for the most part, it was who is, who's engaging with the topic, right? And demographically that meant Gen X and younger. And so the boomers who are, you know, the, the power brokers and are fading out slowly, but are hanging on and just pissing me off daily um, were still like in charge of everything. And so of course they're gonna, you know, it's not, it's not their jam, they're still thinking about hot rods in the 60s or American graffiti or whatever it is that they're doing. People drive me bananas. Um, so you have to wait for the people to come into their own. And it's really hard for PhD students and assistant professors to do anything but publish inside their own disciplinary silos because you're punished for doing anything else. So until you get to tenure and quote unquote, do what you want to do, I'm you know, being very broad about this, you have to stick within these disciplinary silos that's a function of the academic system and it's a flaw for interdisciplinary work. And we're not the only field or subfield that suffers from it. That's into yeah. in my, so, in my soapbox. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that I was super lucky in terms of whenever I've been at various institutions and I've, I've usually up until recently been like the only one studying games and nobody was at least outright hostile. Many people were confused, but they just said, if, well, if you, if you publish something, it, you know, it must be recognized. Right. So that's fine. And um, they even were okay with sort of, you know, going a little bit outside, you know, publishing in like strictly communications journals or something. So, you know, but there are very few of us at the full professor level. And you can see that like now is, you know, we get increasingly asked to write more and more letters, you know, for folks coming up for tenure or, you know, asked to write for people coming up for full. Um, but, you know, it's still pretty bottom heavy. And then that also reflects, you know, like the changing interests, like the younger folks. I mean, games are played by everybody. Um, but when you're younger, you do generally have more time to play them. And, you know, I think there's a greater, like, diversity of, of interests, right, that are coming up. In terms of like where games are going midterm, I mean, so I'm in Canada and it's a little weird because, well, it's weird in many ways, but uh, they haven't had an aversion to funding like humanities-based research, which is largely what I do, like humanities to social science. And so I haven't had 
a really difficult time getting funding to study games. Uh, it's always been harder in the US and it was of course even harder for the last four years. Um, like the government agencies that might've been able to offer some money, you know, saw their budgets zeroed out strictly controlled, you know, um, there was, you know, little sense of, you know, any kind of like innovation or forward thinking. And so they're just now starting to get back on their feet and thinking about, you know, if we do get some more money, uh, you know, like what might we want to do? And so like that will then trickle down to, you know, like academics thinking like, what might I get money for? And I mean, you don't need to have uh, funding to do your research. Most of my research before tenure was all unfunded. Um, but you do need folks who are willing and able to support you in terms of like, you know, uh, getting hired and uh, giving you the time and the space. And honestly, with uh, the pandemic and the financial situation that a lot of universities are facing, I think it's going to get harder and harder. We've already seen, you know, a contraction in the job market. And, you know, I think there's going to be like more shrinkage in terms of loss of tenure track lines. You know, there'll be the assistant, like the, uh, the visitings, the adjuncts, uh, the teaching professors. And those are positions that are, you know, created to teach classes, not to do research. So I actually wonder, you know, what that's gonna mean. I don't think it's gonna mean a lot of good um, just for being able to produce a lot uh, for games and games research. And so my, my commentary is, isn't just about games, but about research and science in general. I'll just state the obvious. It, it isn't just that the last four years under President Trump were um, the, the, the minimization of science. They were anti-science. They were anti-facts. Is this a, a G-rated podcast or can I swear? Uh, it's I okay. Know. Go for it. These, these, these motherfuckers tried to kill everything good. They were from hell. They were just like, yo, it's science. It's fact. Let's string them up and burn them at the stake because America. I'm, I'm sorry, but they were just awful. So just having that stop and getting back to like neutral, it feels like a huge win. Like, oh, we could have peer-reviewed science based on merit. Okay, cool. Like, I'm good with that. Um, maybe the pendulum will swing back to actually investing in science and R&D. As, as I mentioned earlier, if games are more than half of the lived experience of all entertainment across the planet, maybe that's worth looking at across a wide range of human experience. Like it's not just some niche thing that some pointy haired professor wants to look at because we like playing with lasers and elves. We might, but we're also in a pretty good spot to tell you what's going on with the world. So I, I was fortunate enough to get a recent um, NSF grant, a small one to study whether or not games are helping um, mitigate or leading to harm in people's well-being during the pandemic. Does playing more help you or hurt you or for different kinds of people? And I've got two surveys in the field as a result of that funding. And I should have results in probably like a month or so from a couple of different games. So that's, pure science government supported work and in, in the public interest because it's you know well-being and mental health and suicide prevention these are huge public issues right now you're talking yeah. about the effects on millions of people to add to that you know i think one of the most surprising things i've seen in the last year is how the discourse has shifted in the popular media about games you know, because when we first started studying games, you know, you would get the questions about kids and violence. And then, 
if you're a woman, you were asked about, well, oh, my, do women play games? And I still occasionally get, you know, reporters asking that question. Yep. But in the past year, suddenly um, reporters were asking about, because games were one of those things that were, we were suddenly allowed to do. You know, it was, it was a way mm-hmm. to be social that was acceptable. And, you know, Animal Crossing, the new Animal Crossing came out. And so the media was suddenly saying, oh, maybe screen time isn't the basis of all evil. And, you know, it, it might be a way to help keep friendships and family and whatever together. And what are, you know, how do games do that? And what are ways that games can do that? And what are other games that people might be interested in playing if they're tired of Animal Crossing? Yeah. And I, you know, I'll be really curious to see if that changes or not, you know, in the next year or so, but it, it was definitely refreshing uh, and I think even the WHO had come out and said that, you know, like games were uh, an acceptable way to pass the time. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks yeah. for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's not also forget the function within the news media of, of how this works and who the assignment editors are and who owns the gatekeeping functions. And they, for the longest time, were sound generation and baby boomer older editors. And so some young whippersnapper Gen X or millennial says, hey, I want to do a thing on game whatever. And the person like, we're not doing that. And that was the way that the media worked for like the first 20 years that I was thinking about this. And so now as Xers and millennials become the assignment editors, these topics are like, well, yeah, of course, why wouldn't we? Because they grew up with it. So in a sense, it's a lot Richard Bartle said this, I think, somewhere around 2000, 2005. He said, you know, there's been this long war of whether games are good for you or bad for you. And the war is over and we've won because you people are going to die. And I thought, that's blunt, but he's not wrong, um, that there is a demographic generational cohort effect here. And as the older cohort, which was raised in the era and through the 80s, when games became vilified and infantilized, as that group the parts they're replaced by cohorts and generations which play at clips close to 100%. And so it's become more normalized. So it didn't matter how much moralizing or arguing or soapboxing we did, we were always spitting in the wind and then the wind shifted. And now every reporter I talk to is you know under 35 and I don't have to convince them of anything, right? Once in a while, I still get the 45 year to 50 plus year reporter who says my favorite question ever. So do you play games? I love this question because then I get to use my standard responses. So when you talk to a film professor, do you ask them if they watch movies? That's my, that's my favorite response. I only get to use it like once a year now, but it makes me so happy when I get to do it. So that's my snark. Sorry. That's great. So I think in summary, we kind of have um, an optimistic future for game studies, maybe not in the next five or so years as we uh, struggle with our response to the pandemic and budgets as you were talking about Mia, but then longer term with these kind of cohort changes and general acceptance and, and journal publishing, as well as uh, news, we, we should see a growth. Um, I'd like to segue maybe into our penultimate round here or our final one um, and give Connor an opportunity to ask a question from a, a fledgling game design uh, student, aspiring industry member um, for, for these game scholars. Connor, what do you think? Um, yeah, cool. So I guess um, a question I'm curious about is maybe as we're, um, as we're kind of coming into the future, talking about like the future of game studies, um, how important you think maybe some of the 
know, technological developments such as like maybe the, the recent rise in VR might affect um, games and gamers and like how it'll, again, sort of play into the game range moving forward. Hmm. I remember, <laughs> I remember GDC where, uh, I don't know if you were there, Dimitri or Robbie, uh, Microsoft gave away televisions. They were like, the future is HD. And it was one of the big keynotes. And they Googled were, it everyone, too. everyone was given like a different colored card and like 30% or so of the audience had like the blue card, which was the one where that you won like this HD TV. And I, I did not win the TV, um, but there's, there's always this push like within the industry for like the latest technology um, or the latest advance that's gonna totally change things. And I mean, certainly some of them do uh, in terms of research itself. You know, I think like, like any researcher, we can sometimes get excited and fall into the trap of chasing the newest new thing and, you know, saying like, I have to, under, I have to write about it um, now. And it doesn't really give us the time to really think it through. And, you know, I think that it's more valuable often to just sort of step back and wait to see how things play out. Um, <clears throat> because that's only then that you can really see, you know, like looking back now, you can really see the impact of Nintendo's Wii, um, you know, the console and their strategy and like the markets, um, as opposed to like the first year that I came out. And so I guess I tend to take the, the step back and consider approach, but that makes me firmly, you know, like within academia where we're like, I must sit and think. Um, but Dimitri works with industry who usually want answers today. So maybe he has a different uh, answer. No, I, it's funny. I'm, uh, we're taking the um, old people sitting on the porch um, on the swing <laughs> saying, well, let me tell you what it was like in our sense of perspective. Um, there are lots of shiny, sparkly, fun things. And the trick is to figure out which of them are hype and which of them are actually going to diffuse. And we've got great research in con to know what's going to take off and what isn't. So what are our shiny, sparkly objects lately? VR, AR, esports, AI kind of. Um, which of these things is a big deal, which isn't? Um, a lesson may be um, all of us who studied MMOs in the early 2000s because we were playing because we're nerds, right? It was super fun. It was interesting. Um, and you look at the slice of the pie that MMOs represent in overall games, and it's like, you know, this much. It's a vibrant space for research. There's really cool stuff happening there. But some of our job is to reflect on what people are actually doing. And what are people doing? They're playing on mobile phones. Like 60% of games are on mobile phones. It's like, and it's all women. So like, that's where the research should go. So there's a whole bunch of what are the researchers' personal interests and how are they pushing versus what's happening actually demographically. So we may be personally interested in what's going on with VR, AR, but the better question is, are these technologies which are gonna get adopted by a large group of people because they fulfill some important social function? Um, I wrote an editorial a few years ago and I said, VR, no, AR, yes, but long-term. Um, and I still think that's about right because what do they do that's, be that's better than what you already have? We were like, I remember this when Second Life you know, 20 years ago, we're going to live our lives in Second Life. We're going to have our business meetings there. Well, yeah, like I will, but I'm not a representative sample, right? Are people going to do that? No, because it's not better than email. It's not better now than Zoom. Like, so no, it's not going to take off and become a giant thing. So what's going to be widespread versus what's going to be an interesting but vibrant niche? 
And if we can stay that niche because it tells us something about human nature and helps us build on our theories, cool. But let's not pretend that like this is about to take over the world because it's our latest, you know, fun pet mm-hmm. rock. So we got to have that kind of perspective. And one of our tricks is that we're advising PhD students who are going to write their dissertations on something and or put their label and their brand on something. And they are like, ah, I really like the shiny object. And I'm always like, that's really cool. But if it dies five years from now and you're the person associated with it, that doesn't help your career prospects a lot. And you don't want to just be the, you know, the esports girl and esports is like this big. So if you're going to tie your, your star to that wagon, make sure it's a really good wagon. Or you have some kind of security. I remember TL when she was writing her book on esports, like she had started researching it when there was an initial surge of interest. And then it went through a rapid decline while she was writing. She was like, oh no, it's going nowhere. And then she published it just as it was like ascending again. And it went back up again. Yeah, Yeah. she got totally lucky. Yep. But in terms of, I think you make a good point too about researcher interest driving the research, which I mean, I think you do need to be interested in your topic to some extent because it's- you know, you have a lot of time uh, invested, but we do end up with these niches. Like I had done, I edited a book on sports video games with Abe Stein and Constantine Mietkoch. And one of our arguments was like, sports games are huge and we don't talk about them at all. And that book sold like 20 copies. And it's sad because they still are huge. And <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, like a, not just like the US, but a huge percentage of the world plays like FIFA mm-hmm. um, and we know so little about that that swath of like uh, the gaming population, right? And uh, other folks have made the same argument like that Dimitri's making about mobile games, um, casual games, you know, what we used to call them social games. And so it can be helpful also to step back and like, just look at like, what are people not like me doing that I might also get interested in or just like interested in studying what they're doing. I think that's a great segue into kind of a concluding statement here, which is, it seems like if, if you want to succeed, you need to predict the future. It's hard to predict the future. <laughs> um, so you should look at the past. And that's what we did today. Uh, it was a very valuable kind of historical experience, but also gave us some foundation for thinking about where the field is going, what technologies are doing. So thank you guys so much for uh, for contributing. Do you have any final concluding comments for our listeners out there? Hopefully more than 20 one day. <laughs> Um, make friends with computer scientists is my main piece of advice. <laughs> and if you can't make friends with a computer scientist, maybe just somebody from another department or discipline, you know, who can bring another perspective on what you're doing. That's great. And makes a lot of sense. All right. Thank you so much. I'm going to stop the recording. So bye. Bye.